Good evening. Members of Congress tell harrowing stories of survival as pro-Trump insurgents stormed the United States Capitol last week. Is there a larger fascist threat? The New York Attorney General sues the city and the NYPD, and women say they're being abused by the cops. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, January 14th, 2021. President Donald Trump's historic second impeachment could go to trial as soon as Inauguration Day, with U.S. senators not only serving as jurors, but as shaken personal witnesses and victims of the deadly siege of the Capitol by a mob of Trump supporters. Trump is the only president to be twice impeached and the first to be prosecuted as he leaves the White House. House impeachment managers said Thursday they'll be making the case that Trump's rhetoric was not isolated, but rather part of an escalating campaign to overturn the November election results, culminating in Trump's rally cry to fight like hell as Congress was tallying the Electoral College votes, confirming his loss to Democrat Joe Biden. New York Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez said she and other elected officials narrowly escaped death last week as members huddled in a secret room as the armed intruders went rampaging through the Capitol. I did not know if I was going to make it to the end of that day alive. And not just in a general sense, but also in a very, very specific sense. And... You know, I think it's an opportunity for a lot of us to talk about trauma as well. There's a secure extraction point and a secure room that you may have heard a lot of people, members give interviews from. They say, I'm in a secure location, I'm in a secure location. Republican members of Congress didn't wear masks. They refused to wear masks in that enclosed secure location. And now we are on just in the last 24 to 48 hours, our third member of a Democratic member of Congress who just tested positive for COVID because they were sheltering in that place. I myself did not even feel safe going to the that extraction point because there were QAnon and white supremacist sympathizers and frankly, white supremacist members of Congress in that extraction point who I know and who I have felt would disclose my location and allow me to, who would create opportunities to allow me to be hurt, kidnapped, etc. Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. The second term representative is among the most high profile elected officials on the political left and a lightning rod for the right and extreme right. Ocasio-Cortez added in her 30 minute long video on Instagram that those Trump cabinet members and others who have resigned in the wake of Wednesday's violence are cowards. With threats aimed against the January 20th inauguration appearing on the internet, officials are taking the possibility of domestic terrorism more seriously than in the past. The governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, has called out the National Guard to counter threats being made against state houses in his state and nationwide. The Congressional Black Caucus has been meeting to discuss the threat. At hearings today, the Reverend Al Sharpton said his peaceful civil rights rallies are put under a microscope every time they come to Washington, but the Trump supporters were allowed to run wild with Trump's blessing. Madam Chair, lady, and members of the caucus, we need to look into the fact that some of those that have participated in defending what happened have themselves done things that would suggest they were quite familiar with this. On September 16, 1992, There was a police rally, off-duty police, 
protesting a civilian review board in New York City by then Mayor David Dinkins, the first and only black mayor of this city where I'm sitting today. 10,000 police officers marched on City Hall, became violent at City Hall just as the violence was seen at the Capitol last Wednesday. And cars were turned over, glasses was broken. The speaker at that rally was Rudolph Giuliani, the present lawyer for the president of the United States. At the same time period within that same year, the president, then a private citizen, had bought full-page ads calling for the execution of five young men for their alleged participation in the rape and a despicable act against a white female in Central Park. He called for their execution, paid for ads. They were later found to be innocent. So they have a background in being around this kind of anarchy, which should make them even more conscious and more careful when you're dealing with a mob, unless in fact that mob was operating in the spirit that they know is not only possible, but probable. Since the president said, come to the rally, we're going to have a wild time. Mississippi Democrat Benny Thompson echoed other members who say they were targeted. It is clear that even some of our colleagues who are members of Congress, we're going to have to look at their security clearances to make sure that they are not violating the oath that when they have access to a lot of this uh, information. They might be sharing it to the very same people who came into the Capitol and put all of us at risk. So we're going to have to review this whole system. But more importantly, next Wednesday, we have a new president. We have to put on his plate in this first 100 days what real domestic terrorists look like in America. The FBI has produced information that it won't publish that says that the single greatest threat in America is a right-wing domestic terrorist threat. We plan to force them after next week to release that information so the entire public can see it. And former Naval Intelligence agent Malcolm Nance testified that the dangers of right-wing extremism are real and being ignored. At the direction of the president, the U.S. Capitol was placed under siege without any security measures found in a national security event where the vice president, the vice president-elect, the Speaker of the House, and the President of the Senate pro tem were assembled in one spot. President Trump launched his followers to seize control of the Capitol, and they sought to likely harm the members once found inside. We now know there were likely capture and kill teams roaming around looking to find elected members. Had they successfully found incapacitated or injured Vice President Pence, Senator Harris, Speaker Pelosi, and Senator Grassley, all of whom were in the same room, the United States government would have been decapitated and reduced to one man, Donald Trump, who would have been left unscathed and in power. Yet the uprising is not over. Indeed, this is only the beginning. The U.S. Army and Marine Corps Counterinsurgency Field Manual authored by General David Petraeus in 2000, defines insurgency as an organized movement aimed at the overthrow of a constituted government through the use of subversion and armed conflict. Insurgencies are inherently about seizing political power through arms and political chaos action. 
Their principal goal is to make existing governments seem powerless, feckless, and incapable of protecting the common citizen. This will be the objective of the soon-to-be-out-of-power Trump administration and the Republican Party holdovers who adhere to him. Trump and his family will not be going away with a fond farewell and cheery good wishes. They have already started to transform themselves into a malicious political opposition machine that intends to destroy the Biden administration and, in their own terms, liberalism in America on every level. Former Naval Intelligence agent Malcolm Nance testifying before Congress today. And in Michigan, a new investigation of the Flint water disaster led to charges against nine people, including former Michigan Governor Rick Snyder, a Republican, and key members of his administration who were accused of various crimes in a calamitous plan that contaminated the community with lead and contributed to a fatal outbreak of Legionnaire's disease. Snyder's former health director, Nick Lyon, and ex-medical chief, Dr. Eden Wells were charged with involuntary manslaughter in the 2015 deaths of nine people with Legionnaires. Separately, the state of Flint, a hospital and an engineering firm have agreed to $641 million settlement with residents. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. New York State Attorney General Letitia James announced the state has sued the New York City Police Department for widespread brutality against protesters after the murder of George Floyd. We found that over the course course of the protest from May to December of 2020, NYPD officers engaged in blatant use of excessive force and often misconduct, including the indiscriminate, unjustified and repeated use of batons, pepper spray, bicycles, and a crowd-controlled tactic known as kettling, also referred to as containment, which caused significant physical harm. James adds the NYPD targeted observers and others. We also found that NYPD officers unlawfully detained and arrested legal observers, medics, and other essential workers performing services without uh, their arrests were without probable cause and in direct violation of the executive order that was issued by the mayor of the city of New York. Last month, New York City's Department of Investigation released a report claiming some police officers used aggressive tactics and violated the First Amendment rights of protesters over this summer. The report concluded the NYPD was unprepared for large protests and lacked training, while commanders used riot control tactics on peaceful protesters, violating their civil rights. James says the state wants a monitor to oversee the department's policing tactics and a court order declaring the cops used illegal tactics against the demonstrations. This lawsuit seeks broad injunctive relief, including systemic reforms to the NYPD and a monitor to oversee the NYPD's compliance with the law and policing practices in future protest. We are also seeking an order from the court declaring that NYPD's response to protesters were in fact unlawful and in violation of their first, their fourth and 14th constitutional rights. James said the NYPD tactics followed a pattern of illegal and harmful practices the city had failed to prevent through discipline, policies, and training. Several alleged victims of brutality during the George Floyd protests over the summer made statements at the news conference. Andrew Smith was peacefully protesting in Brooklyn on May 30th when his face mask was yanked off by Officer Michael Schur, who pepper sprayed him.
Smith describes what happened next. On May 30th, Michael Scher, a white police officer, again showed the world the inadequate training, the violent, racist culture of the NYPD when he attacked me while my hands were high up in the air. I was no threat. I was not being aggressive or hostile, but somehow I was still assaulted by the police. The officer who was supposed to be a part of the police force, sworn to protect and serve, bypassed several white protesters standing to my right, only to shove me in my chest, snatch off my COVID mask, and pepper sprayed me in the face, then bragged to his buddies about how he assaulted me. I strongly believe that Officer Shear should be prosecuted and removed because he represents members of the police force who hide in uniform, terrorizing those they are sworn to protect. Luke Hanna says he was walking home from a protest on June 3rd in Cadman Plaza near the Brooklyn Bridge when he was beaten on the head without warning. I was peacefully protesting the murder of George Floyd with hundreds of others peacefully protesting. After being thrown to the ground several times uh, and witnessing violent acts against numerous protesters, I fled the area in compliance with the NYPD's instructions while walking in the pouring rain. You know, I could hardly stay out of my glasses away from Cadman Plaza, surrounded by dozens of officers, and I was alone. I was struck from behind with a baton, and uh, I touched my head, and my hands were covered in blood. You know, more than just the pain, immediate physical pain of being beaten on the head was the lasting pain and anger of having my constitutional rights violated. I'm a U.S. citizen. I'm a New Yorker. I I live in downtown Brooklyn, and I walk through that area on a regular basis. I just couldn't believe it. You know, I'm one skinny guy at that time surrounded by dozens of strong officers and body armor. There's no way I pose any threat. I think I was assaulted by an irresponsible officer because that officer was sure that he or she would get away with it. A former U.S. Marine, Rain Valentine, was leaving his shift at Kings County Hospital when he ran into the police. A cop told him, you picked the wrong time to be here. On a night of May 30th, I was walking to the subway after my finishing my shift at the hospital I work at in Brooklyn when I saw multiple NYPD officers throw a man to the ground and start beating him. There were around six officers attacking this one person, so I began to record it with my phone. While I was filming, an officer walked up to me while swinging his baton and yelled, get back, get back. I immediately started walking backwards in compliance and responded that I was moving back. The next thing I knew, that same officer charged at me. He pushed me to the ground and began attacking me for no apparent reason. Additional officers then joined him and continued to beat me. I told the officers I was simply trying to get home, to which one of the officers threateningly replied, you picked the wrong time to do that. I was terrified. When the beginning, when the beating finally stopped, they left me on the ground with blood streaming down my face. I was in great pain. I knew I needed medical attention, so I went back to the hospital where I work and had to get seven staples to close the gash in my head. I worked tirelessly at a hospital to protect New Yorkers from COVID-19, risking my life and my safety to help people I don't even know. Yet when I walk out onto the street, simply trying to get home after a long, hard day, I was viciously attacked. On June 4th, 250 peaceful protesters were surrounded and arrested in Mott Haven in the Bronx. A Human Rights Watch report says the NYPD planned the assault, forcing the demonstrators into an enclosed space with no exit, a tactic called kettling. Attorney General James. The use of kettling is unconstitutional, also known as containment. 
and the use of excessive force by members of the NYPD is also unconstitutional. And it's clearly that we must have policies and procedures in place and that officers are trained and are disciplined in response to large-scale protests. The NYPD responded to James's suit with a tweet, asserting the department welcomes reform and has embraced the most recent suggestions by both the city's Department of Investigation and the city's law department. And the immigrant civil rights organization, Make the Road New York, applauds the attorney general's lawsuit against the mayor and police department, agreeing that New Yorkers who took to the streets suffered abusive and brutal tactics from the NYPD. Casey Foster is an organizer with the group. I think this is a good thing that the attorney general is using the tools that they have as attorney general to acknowledge and recognize that the police department's tactics this summer were illegal and they violated the constitutional rights of New Yorkers and that they're willing to take the city to court to try to push forward some resolutions and recommendations because the city is clearly not willing to hold officers accountable for violating the civil rights of New Yorkers. With that being said, litigation is one way and we've seen litigation in New York City in the past, the stop and frisk litigation being one example, and we know that is not going to change the NYPD's practices. And so we're going to need New Yorkers to continue to protest, to continue to organize, to ensure that whoever is the mayor of this city is swiftly and effectively holding officers accountable for abusing their power. Doesn't it seem like there's a lot of action without much in the way of results? That should fall at the feet of the mayor who, with all the evidence that we've seen, and now this latest move by the attorney general, it's clear to all New Yorkers that the mayor has failed to hold the NYPD accountable for continued and systemic abuses, particularly in black and brown communities in New York. And it's frustrating uh, to see that we continue to be reminded of that. People who live in our communities, we're reminded of that in everyday interactions with the police. The failure of action on the city to significantly change and reduce the power and scope of the NYPD falls squarely at the feet of the mayor. Why is it so intractable, this problem, that the mayor even seems to take this laissez-faire attitude, there's nothing I can do about it, really? We could look at the police department as serving a purpose for the larger state. And if we kind of make the connections between what happened on January 6th in D.C., where we saw law enforcement agencies step aside for a violent spectacle from a mob that was expressing it should continue to be a white democracy in America. And compare and contrast that to the NYPD beating people who were protesting the continued state murder of black people. Our police departments are serving a purpose to maintain law and order and order being a racial hierarchy in the country in which black people remain at the bottom. And so it's intractable because the purpose that they're serving is maintaining inequality and white supremacy, which is up until this point been intractable to move, particularly through policy. And so I think that's why New Yorkers need to stay vigilant and continue to organize to really transform not just police departments, but our city and state and the country as a whole. Casey Foster is an organizer with the group Make the Road New York. 
And another issue about alleged NYPD misconduct is being discussed by the Civilian Complaint Review Board. The CCRB investigates complaints by the public against cops. Yesterday, they were discussing rule changes for sexual misconduct investigations of officers. Ashley Sawyer is Senior Director of Campaigns at Girls for Gender Equity. She says the problem of authorities forcing women into sex is deeply rooted and needs a societal change. But in the meantime, the CCRB could help out. In the immediate, we understand that the Civilian Complaint Review Board, CCRB, does have the option or the authority to start to hold officers accountable and to have some scope into incidences of police sexual misconduct. Our organization, Girls for Gender Equity, put out a report that's on our website about incidents of police misconduct that include girls of color under the age of 24. And it's actually really appalling the numbers and we understand that it's disproportionately impacting Black and Latinx girls. And so we know that they are living in communities where they don't have a lot of power, where they're less likely to be believed if they come forward. Members of the police force have a lot of protection. We know and we think about the incident of Eric Garner, where he was killed on camera. So there was no dispute by Pantaleo, and it took five years for Pantaleo to get fired. And so we know that if a person comes forward and says that they were sexually assaulted and they're a teenager, a young black person, a person who has a record or a trans person, a person who has done sex work, they are just not likely to be believed, especially when they're put up against a member of law enforcement. So we want to do what we can to hopefully make sure that officers who are sexually assaulting people are fired. And that's the long-term goal. But in the, the immediate, we certainly want the CCRB to have more scrutiny and more authority to investigate incidents where people come forward and who are brave enough to come forward and say that an officer has sexually assaulted them. This is police in the community using sexuality as a force, sex as a force to uh, dominate people. Of course. And so we think about when we're talking about teenage girls, it's really, really dangerous when you think about the fact that cops have this power. They can say, hey, you know, you're being caught with marijuana, regardless of what the law says. For a young person who's caught smoking marijuana, that's an A misdemeanor. And so the young person is going to be terrified. The officer can then proceed to say, well, if you do XYZ sexual act, I'll make this disappear. I won't write you a ticket or I won't arrest you. Any time that someone has the ability to take away another person's freedom, in this case police, they have an unfair amount of power. And so they certainly use sexual violence and sexual coercion in order to place pressure on people. They know that if a person gets arrested, the person might sit in jail for weeks or months before the case is dismissed or even gone to trial. And so the person has to choose between being sexually assaulted or having a criminal charge. Police know that Members of the community, particularly people of color, particularly marginalized people, don't feel like they have the option to say, no, I don't want to give you my phone number. No, I don't want to go on a date with you. They know that members of the public don't have that flexibility or that freedom, and they use that to coerce people. And that is sexual violence. And we just want to make sure that the community knows that this happens all the time and also make sure that the CCRB is doing its job to collect data around that and to do investigations around that. 
Ashley Sawyer is Senior Director of Campaigns at Girls for Gender Equity. And the CCRB has only been looking into sexual abuse by some cops since 2018, prompted in part by high-profile incidents like that involving a teenager named Anna Chambers, who unsuccessfully charged cops with extorting sex. And finally... Representative Adriano Aspayat, who was a guest on this program yesterday, says he's quarantining at home after testing positive for coronavirus just one day after joining impeachment proceedings on the House floor. Aspayat represents New York's 13th congressional district, which includes Upper Manhattan and the Northwest Bronx. He was on the House floor yesterday for debate and to cast his vote in favor of impeaching President Donald Trump a second time. The the congressman said he received the second dose of COVID-19 vaccine last week, adding in a tweet that he understands the effects take time. He's one of several lawmakers who announced a positive COVID-19 test results since the insurrection at the Capitol last week, which forced members to shelter in place for several hours. Three lawmakers who were in a room with other lawmakers not wearing masks, Representatives Bonnie Watson Coleman of New Jersey, Pramila Jaypal, a Democrat of Washington, and Brad Schneider of Illinois, have since tested positive for COVID-19. It's unclear if Espiat was in that room. It's not certain where and when lawmakers caught the illness, but the Capitol's attending physician notified all House lawmakers of possible virus exposure and urged them to be tested. Dr. Brian Moynihan said members who were in protective isolation last Wednesday may have been exposed to another occupant with coronavirus infection. Espiat said he'll work remotely until he receives clearance from his doctor. And that's some of the news for Thursday, January 14th, 2021. The news producer, Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson. From New York City for the WBAI News, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.